News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk about the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. This has been around for a couple of months now. It was a desperately needed lifeline for millions of Canadians, where it pays people $2,000 a month if they are out of work because of COVID-19. It also, and they changed this a little bit, it allows people to earn up to $1,000 a month without losing their eligibility. And remember, the reason why the government did that is that as people were easing their way back to work and businesses were trying to open, people didn't necessarily have full-time work, but it still wasn't enough for them to live on. So they had made that exception there. But has this created any kind of an incentive for people to avoid earning more than $1,000 a month so they can still get their CERB? And now the government has to figure out some kind of exit strategy there. We're going to talk more about this now uh, with Wilfrid Laurier Economics Professor Tammy Sherrill. Good morning, Tammy. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Do you think the CERB has accomplished its objective? Well, I think we have to look at a very quickly changing timeline here in terms of objectives over the past few months. I mean, initially, we needed everyone to quickly shut things down and send people home and convince them to stay there. And CERB did exactly that. It provided the support to do that. It was simple, it was fast, and it worked. But now that we're trying to reopen, and this is really a partial reopening in many sectors, it's not well designed to support that kind of work. And so, what we, we expect to see over the next couple of months is a lot of workers are in a very difficult position where their employer can't offer the full-time hours they used to get, and they needed those full-time hours to pay their bills. But if they accept the part-time hours being offered, might be making just over that, that, that $1,000, then they become ineligible for the CERB and they won't be able to pay their bills. So they're in this really hard place, and they're just trying to find a way to work things out given that system that we have in place right now. Right. But the decision time is kind of looming, though, isn't it, Tammy? Because the CERB is only good for another, what, month or so? Yeah, it's, it's been extended by the eight weeks. So that's going to get most people through July and August. And, you know, that was a decision to do that very simple extension, I hope, so that they can buy a little bit of time to figure out what's going to come next and set out the system for what comes next. Unfortunately, trying to just transfer everyone into EI or create something that's more complex, it, it sounds simple sometimes, you know, from, from my armchair, yeah. but then somebody has to set up the IT systems and get the process in place and legislation in place to do that. And so hopefully over the next few weeks, we, we hear some announcements about what is going to be coming up for September. And what is the best way, do you think, to ease people back into that or back off of the CERB? Well, it's, it's, I'm not sure there's a, an obvious, easiest, uh, best way to do that. But I think first and foremost, we have to think about that $1,000 threshold and what happens when you earn just a little bit more than that. And so one suggestion that I've made and, and really just aligns with what we currently do in employment insurance is to allow people to earn a little bit more money, but not entirely take away their benefits. So they'll take away perhaps, you know, 50 cents for every dollar that you earn. And that way you're at least better off by going back to work and taking whatever you can. And so doing things like that is a starting point. But I think what we're also going to need is a, a bigger system for everyone to find ways back to work who aren't getting called back. So a lot of people have lost their jobs permanently or at least indefinitely uh, moving forward. They're going to need help searching for jobs. They're going to need some training opportunities to move into the new industries that, where they will find new opportunities. And that's something bigger uh, that can come with something like employment insurance. 
that hopefully we see better developed over the next couple of months. Right, because we have heard from some employers who say they're having trouble attracting people to come to work, right? Oh, certainly. I mean, and I think there's probably a lot of reasons for that. Um, You know, everyone, of course, is concerned about their own health and safety. And if they're being Mm -hmm. asked to work at the same wages at a much riskier job now, that's one part of the consideration. We also have problems with general child care. Um, we're looking at what we're going to do with kids for, for school in September. Um, you know, how do we juggle that in trying to get that together? And so, you know, often that's going to incur a lot more extra expenses. Just getting to work on transit yeah. right now can, can be a challenge. And so there's many things there. But certainly, you know, when we looked at who lost their jobs, um, especially in that depth of, of this crisis, nearly half of the job losses could be attributed to people in this lowest quarter of earnings group. So this is roughly people making minimum wage at full-time hours or less, and that's adding up to roughly $2,000 a month in most provinces. And so that's the group that I think is, is looking at, you know, do I pay for childcare and find my way to work to make that amount of money or something closer to $1,000 or do I kind of stick it out for a little while longer and see what's coming next? Right. You said something interesting there, though, that I've heard from many parents, and that is they don't see things returning to normal until the kids are in school because there is this huge childcare problem. Is that something that you think the government needs to address? Definitely. And this is really in the provincial jurisdiction. I mean, we can look to the federal government for some funding and, and assistance there, but all of the education problems are, are going to be have to dealt with at the provincial level where they need to find a way to get these kids back to school safely. Um, one part of that is to make sure moms can get back to work because asking moms to just drop their jobs and careers, yeah. that's taking roughly 40% of incomes out of households here. Um, so, you know, that's a huge costly way of doing that. And, and it's going to have long-term consequences for all of these moms and some dads, of course, but their long-term careers will be completely interrupted. Um, but apart from that, we just need to get kids back to school safely for the kids. Um, they're losing out here in terms of their education and they have a right to yeah. that education. But to do that safely, we need to have some extra classroom space and some extra teachers. And that's not cheap. So I think there's a bit of reluctance there, but I would certainly push for, for moving forward with that. I feel like a lot of businesses should be pushing for this as well because they're wrapping up. They want to get back to normal. They can't do that if they still have employees working from home who are also juggling childcare. They're, you know, looking after the kids. So it's, it's actually a win-win for everyone to figure this problem out. Exactly. I think so. Uh, you know, I think there's a, there's a very old view out there, a very traditional view that, you know, this would be a parent's responsibility and it's certainly not an employer's concern. But as more and more women are simply a, a central part of our labor market now, this is part of our, our labor market infrastructure mm-hmm. that we need. We need that kind of child care opportunities so that everyone can get to work and get the job done. All right, Tammy, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That's Tammy Sherrill, Professor of Economics at Wilfrid Laurier University, talking about the Canada Emergency Response Benefit and the ways in which the federal government should probably start to tinker with this over the next little while to get more people back to work, but not financially punishing them. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. Well, I'm sure a lot of people maybe had a drink outside yesterday, might have been their backyard. Maybe they'd prefer to be in a park somewhere. Well, let's find out if that's going to be possible soon, at least in Vancouver. Nikki Reitmeyer joining us now for more on that. Good morning, Nikki. 
Good morning, Simi. Yeah, it looks like Vancouver will be voting today on whether it will be allowing drinking in specific locations. And we've seen other municipalities or other cities go through this similar measure since the COVID-19 pandemic began. North Vancouver, Port Coquitlam, of course, you'll remember, they've been doing exactly the same thing, looking at whether or not they'll allow drinking in specific locations in some parks in their cities right. or some spots in their cities that are public. If people are able to you know, open a can there and have a drink, is that going to be Okay, and we're going to see the same thing happening in Vancouver with a park board vote today. Okay, and and so this isn't just going to be every park, though, right? We should add the the park board has been working on this for a long time. This is before COVID nineteen. They had been they'd been asking about this for about a year, kind of looking into the different ways they could do this. Yeah, and arguably too long. I mean, to allow people to be adults, this seems like a no-brainer. You have people who are responsibly drinking in public parks as it is now anyways. I mean, for as long as I've lived in Vancouver, I've... But as you know, as I walk my dogs through the streets of Vancouver and through city parks, you see a group of friends sitting there on a picnic blanket and they're having a couple beers casually on a Sunday afternoon, and it's been a non-issue. So you've had Vancouver residents calling for this for a long time. Now, over the past while, they've been looking at addressing this, and I think that COVID-19 has sort of pushed them to make a move on this even further, but it'll be just 10 locations that they are hmm. looking at allowing this for, and there's certain you know, spots that they've chosen for a reason. Are there public washrooms? Is there ample parking? Is there ample transit? Uh, is there ample garbage containers in the area or garbage cans where people can get rid of garbage? So those were some of the protocols yeah, that they were exploring as to why they chose these locations. Uh, that's what I'm, the garbage thing is something I'm afraid of, right? Because we've seen what happens after the fireworks, that there's plenty of garbage available, like people should pack in, pack out their own garbage, and they still don't do it. Yeah, I, I don't know if you're ever going to be able to change human nature in that regard. And, and the garbage in Vancouver does make me absolutely crazy. Oh, I was don't get on Granville Street. Yes, oh, I know, I know. This is a whole other conversation. So we could go down a rabbit hole. Here. I know. Really I was on Granville Street yesterday, and you know, there's there's garbage absolutely everywhere, and it is. Oh. It's really embarrassing, and I don't want to see Vancouver get worse in that regard. I think, though, it's very possible that with this pilot project, with only 10 parks being selected, that it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy where you do have an increase in garbage and an increase in the problems that they're trying to avoid. Because now you have a whole bunch of people who want to drink legally or as they're allowed to, they're going to flock to these 10 parks in very specific locations. I mean, for example, one of those locations is Stanley Park, but it's just this small, small triangle of Stanley yeah, Park. So you're going to have this big concentration of people there bringing all of their garbage and problems instead of people just going to whatever local park is near them and then taking their garbage home with them. This is the part that I don't understand too. Like I get they want to pilot this project and see, try out these 10 locations, but you know what people are like. All people are going to see is the headline of the story, right? That says Vancouver Park yeah to allow drinking in parks. And so they're going to think they can drink in every park. Which I think they should be moving towards that model anyways. Like, are you telling me it makes more sense for me to be allowed to drink in a park that I have to, say, drive to that's far away from me instead of saying to my friends who live in my well, neighborhood, hey, why don't we meet down at the local park instead that's near us? We can pull out a picnic blanket and have a few beers on a Saturday afternoon. I mean, allowing people to do that makes way more sense than telling people that they have to travel to these specific locations. <laughs> I was just thinking, I'm sorry, I'm laughing, but all I could think of was if people are actually doing that, that's a real commitment to drinking in a public park, 
tried getting in a car <laughs> and actually driving to a park. That might be a step too far for people. I think what they'll do instead is they'll just go to their local park and drink, assuming that they can drink in all parks. I just wish yeah. people would learn to look after their garbage because then none of this would be as much of an issue. Yeah, I agree. The garbage thing will always make me crazy. I truly hope, I truly hope that we don't see an increase in garbage. People drink in public parks responsibly as it is currently. And hopefully we don't see any increase in public garbage with this, this new measure coming into place. If they do allow the drinking in these 10 specific locations, hopefully you have the same people who are already doing this, continuing to do what they do, which is remove their garbage with them. And you're always going to have a few people who are problematic. And believe me, I can't stand those people because like right. yourself, I hate, I hate the garbage. Now, as far as the cans go, uh, Vancouver does seem to have people who, who tend to go to to parks where they know people are drinking. Jericho Beach is a location that comes to mind. I've seen them walking around there grabbing cans and so forth. So I don't think that we'll see too many issues with, say, cans and bottles sticking around for very long. But the garbage is something that I think Vancouver needs to address, yes. not even just with this drinking, these pilot projects, in general. but everywhere in this darn yeah. city. It is awful. And that's, you know, and people complain there's not enough garbage cans. And I admit, okay, yes, that's true. But also, we need to take more responsibility for our garbage. You know what I mean? Like, if it's your garbage, yeah. and you don't see a garbage around or the garbage is full, then you just hold on to it until you can dispose of it properly. That's the deal. Don't just, like, throw it on the ground or leave it somewhere and thinking somebody else is going to look after it. That's it my reminds rant. me of the old phrase that my father used to say, what, were you raised in a barn? <laughs> That's what I think of whenever I see these even individuals litter in a their garbage on yes. the grounds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that, Nikki. Thanks, Simi. That's our Nikki Reitmeyer. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. Well, it's become a bit of a depressing broken record, hasn't it? Another day, more records broken in COVID-19 cases. Both Texas and Florida saw that happen over the weekend. So let's get an update on what's happening south of the border now. Joining us is Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So these numbers don't look like they are slowing down at all. No, they don't. Uh, and they continue to go up and health experts fear and warn that they're going to continue to go up uh, in the days and weeks to come. Uh, as you mentioned over the weekend, records set in Florida and Texas. Florida alone posted 20,000 cases in a 48-hour period. Uh, the death toll in the United States still stands just under 130,000, but there is a fear now that two weeks down the road as a lagging indicator that that death toll could actually spike by somewhere between 10 and 30,000 before the end of the month. Okay, and so there's no signs of things slowing down, though, in terms of reopening, is there? No, I mean, look, phased reopenings are still going on across the country, despite the fact that some states are now actively starting to pull back. They're starting to say that, sure, we're going to allow for some things to reopen, but in uh, like in restaurant eating is not going to continue uh, in parts of New York and New Jersey. Uh, it still is essentially a jumbled mess in the United States when it comes to reopening, when it comes to uh, people being around each other. And that was evident over the weekend uh, with long weekend parties that saw mostly young people gathered in massive groups outdoors with no masks and not socially distant. Ugh, yeah, I saw a lot of these pictures. How big of a problem do they think this July 4th holiday is going to be? 
Well, look, we saw what happened in May when the numbers started to spike two weeks later. There is a uh, growing fear that two weeks from now, uh, what we're going to see is a secondary spike in cases on top of the spike uh, that we are seeing right now. There is a good uh, fear that came from uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci just you know a week and a bit ago that said that the United States could actively start posting 100,000 cases per day two weeks from now with the growing numbers of people that we've been seeing outside. Those numbers are very quickly becoming a reality. All right. So nothing seems to be slowing down there. But do you think like it's, has the president addressed this at all? I know he had a couple of events on the weekend. The president had an event on the weekend where coronavirus was not really brought up. He said that the administration's strategy is moving well. It's unclear what the president meant with that, unless he meant a strategy of simply not talking about it. Uh, you know, he, he's, he talked about the fact that he sees coronavirus as being 99%, uh, you know, under control and 99% of the cases aren't really all that bad, despite the fact that 130,000 Americans are dead. There is a lack of top down messaging coming from the federal government and it is having a deadly impact across this country. All right. So nothing really changing on that front there. But it sounds like some individual governors are taking steps. For instance, you know, Greg Abbott in Texas, I never thought I would see, you know, the Texas governor saying, please wear a mask. Yeah, look, this is there we, we we saw this last week. There's a break in Republican ranks where more and more Republican leaders are understanding the severity of the situation and also understanding that in an election year, your decisions uh, when it comes to the health and livelihoods of your residents potentially could be the make or break point of your political future. So we're seeing more Republican leaders don masks, tell people that social distancing is essential. We didn't see that in South Dakota with the president uh, last week. We aren't seeing that with some of the president's closest advisors. But at the end of the day, there is a break in the Republican ranks, but there is still no national strategy, which is why you're seeing such confusion continue from coast to coast. All right. I'm sure there's more to come on that, Reggie. Thank you. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Uh, yeah, another weekend of record-breaking numbers. Florida had more than 11,000 new cases in one day, they reported that number on Saturday. Uh, as Reggie mentioned, in a twenty-four in a forty-eight hour period, they had something like twenty thousand new cases. Texas also breaking uh, their record number of cases as well. Sales are up sixty-five uh, percent over last month, and what that tells us is that as the economy has opened up, a certain amount of comfort is uh, back between buyers and sellers as they're working with their realtors. That's Colette Gerber with the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver talking with our Jill Bennett on Friday. So sales are up. Prices also holding steady. We wanted to get a bit of a deeper dive into what's going on with our real estate market right now. So joining us is real estate analyst Dane Idle, the founder of Idle Insights. Dane, good morning. Good morning, Simi. Thank you. Simi, thank you for having me back. What do you think about these numbers, Dane? You know, it's, it's interesting. The headlines will read very positive as you're previous guests alluded to there but really while sales were up they're comparing them to you know the worst sales month in history um also this past june was the third worst june in the previous 15 years the only two worst previous were the immediate previous two so really the last three years have been in a downtrend and that really hasn't been prevalent in the market and that's why this is trying to always spin this in a positive way Seemingly, the board isn't necessarily a market analyst. They're more of a market <laughs> activist. Um, they always have positive outlooks, which is interesting. And when you're always positive, it's hard to kind of take you at your word value. 
I think that's very true because we saw a lot of that like during the actual when the market was out of control, people looking for some insight. We didn't really see that as well, but that's their job, right? Absolutely. Uh, But year over year, the fact that numbers are up June over June, we didn't have COVID last June. So is there not any kind of a positive there? You know what? Absolutely. Again, it looks positive. However, the June sales that are reported those are from previous month ex- accepted offers. So the actual accepted offers in the month of June were 561, which is the lowest in the previous 15 years. So again, it is a COVID uh, reality, but this was supposed to be the month that we had this pent up demand for sales that were going to roll through. That never actually occurred. What did occur was an underlying current that isn't really prevalently talked about, but will become more and more prevalent is not a, 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 or a demand pent up, but there's actually a pent up uh, need to sell. And that will become increasingly prevalent. We had the highest uh, brand newly or new monthly listings in the condo market in since 2012, we had over 2,800 brand new condo listings. We had over, um, 4,200 in the total detached market number break for the first time since last year as well. So nobody's talking about the inventory rising rapidly. They're talking about the sales numbers rising nominally. Right. So why the pent-up need to sell? Are these people who were just waiting to see if the market got better and now they run out of time? Absolutely. That, that's, a, that's a significant majority of the market that it was optimistic going into 2019. So they said, we'll see how 2020 plays out. Ideally, it would have been much better for them. Uh, reality has hit hard. Uh, so, and not, and not to mention, this will continue going into 2021. So, as prices continue to go lower, you'll see that the five-year mortgage renewal from 2016, which were very near all-time highs, are, are going to be forced into a selling mode. And what will be interesting about that right now, you are seeing a little bit of a, a, an even market where some buyers are saying, "Hey, it's cheap. I can buy." Mm-hmm. But once the whole market does continue to fall off you'll have a completely different buyer methodology than during the frenzy market where people were outbidding each other, throwing money at the sellers. What you'll have, even though prices are down to the lows of the market cycle, is you'll have the buyer mentality. It's basically a fear of overpaying for a depreciating asset, even though the asset has already depreciated. So it'll be a very interesting phenomenon that does occur. Because there are things out there that are still selling for full asking price. So is it still, Dane, really all about how aggressively you price your property? That's it. Um, I mean, a, a, a good property will sell. What's a good property? It's a, it's a property listed at an attractive price. Um, and what is interesting that you'll notice as well is the higher end properties are selling. So you'll have mansions that are listed at 17 million selling for 12. So that's a large discount. But no one's really looking at the lot value properties. Those are really off the radar because, again, people are fear, fearful that the market might go lower. However, if you can get a mansion on the cheap, they're not too necessarily worried. So there is kind of a, a differential depending on the market price point that you're looking at. But um, going forward, the methodology will, again, shift to maybe buying some investment properties, which will also force the market average sale price lower as people stop buying the mansions and start looking for the investment properties. And that will, <laughs> as odd as it sounds, even though it's uh, solidifying probably the basement of the market, of, of the bottom threshold of the price, that'll actually put fear into the market because prices are lower. So even though they're consolidating, there will be a fear base that uh, people will be missed out on this opportunity to purchase on the lows. Okay, so do you expect then things to kind of hold in place like this? Like have prices, do you think, reached that bottom? No. Um, (laughs) So basically prices are only down 12% in the detached market from the peak. 
again, we're going to be basically seeing a doubling of that uh, down to 1.4. So in June, average sale price was 1620000 We're forecasting uh, by 2021, the bar- bar- market bottom threshold will be around $1.4 million. That's still pretty expensive, though, Dane. It is. And, and again, that will be your average. So you'll have your higher-end properties that are selling for nominal fees. And um, so, so you do have your West Vancouver's and your Whistler's, which last month sold one sale for $8 million. So that does have an effect into the overall average sale price. Um, so it does depend on which local community. And that is something right. that ITEL Insights does offer is your local area broken down. Okay, so that's, the, that's I think, where the concern would be, right? Your, your destination places that have banked on selling these expensive you know, um, communities to perhaps uh, out-of-country buyers, every right. market around the world, you know, including the biggest in the UK, is having that problem now. Absolutely. Um, w- w- again, what's kind of interesting about that, you are correct, those tertiary markets, those investment markets are seeing very low inventory or very low sales, let's say, activity in there. But what you are seeing an increase in inventory or, uh, activity is, is is our islands. Like Bowen Island just hit an all-time high in sales, completely mm-hmm. co- uh, opposite to the whole market. And in 18 out of the 20 areas that make up Greater Vancouver, the overall inventory rose. There was only two markets that didn't. Um, so, so yeah, we're, we're switching to basically finally entering, at least in the, the public's eye, into the buyer's favor. Uh, for the last two years, it seems to have been debatable, um, which is fine and fair, but now it, it, it will continue to enter into the buyer's favor. Okay, and so we're still expecting more kind of condo stuff listings to show up on the market, are we not? Like Because all these pre-builds that are being finished. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, inventory for the uh, the condo market, again, did just actually pass 5,000, again, for the first time since 2019. However, this isn't going to stop. There will be a, a, a glut of inventory that does come to the condo market. Our old all-time highs was roughly around 8,500 active listings, and that was during the 2008-2009 market recession. We'll, we'll see those numbers exceeded, so we'll probably see 9,000 active listings plus before 2022 comes rolls around. And that'll really be in the buyer's favor. You get your 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 pick of the litter, um, not right. only just because of the brand new inventory that will be introduced to the market, but we're also going to see you know uh, the rentals that people are giving up um, or or getting evicted from because they're not paying their rent. Oof. So there will be a plethora of inventory available for the condo market upcoming. Okay, so then what are your predictions for the next couple of months, Dane? Yeah, for the next couple of months, what's interesting is, again, we did see uh, a 2% up, uh, uptick in the actual sales price for the detached market. However, that's still 12% off the peak. And what this is doing, it's created a lower high. So we're actually anticipating seeing a fairly staunch downtrend for the detached market. And for the condo market, it's, it's, it's right in its middle threshold. Um, again, seemingly like we're going to have a leg lower. So in both markets, as inventory rises and, and the, the sales remains dormant, that, that will have a natural effect between the supply and the demand factors, which will start putting uh, competition amongst the sellers. And then ultimately that competition will lead to lower prices based on a need to sell. All right. Okay. Dane, thank you. No problem, Simi. Thank you very much for having me. Anytime. That's Dane Idol, founder of Idol Insights. They're a real estate analysis company. And you just heard Dane's analysis there, whereas the numbers seem positive, he still sees some underlying issues there. But the fact of the matter is a lot of people have sat on the sidelines. They might have been thinking about selling and they didn't thinking, oh, we got to wait until the market picks up. And now they're listing because they don't have a choice. They're at that point where they have to sell. Uh, so yeah, tell me what it's like in your neighborhood. Things selling things sitting on the market, simi at cknw.com. 
It's a story that I think so many people are fascinated by all over the world. It involves very wealthy people doing awful things. And now one of the perpetrators that is alleged to be involved in that is due in court this week. And that is the associate of Jeffrey Epstein, girlfriend, good friend, whatever you want to call her, Gillian Maxwell, who will be in court on Friday. Now she is facing charges associated with grooming young women to be sexually abused by the billionaire and the prosecution is concerned that she may be a flight risk of some kind. To talk more about this case and what has been going on here, we're joined now by CBS crime reporter Paul Vialis. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Simi. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. This story, I think, is just so fascinating to people. Is it just kind of a glimpse of what goes on at the higher levels, these people who are billionaires? You know what it certainly is, Cindy? I can tell you, I've worked human trafficking cases for many years, and at the very top, the organizers, the hierarchy of, of human trafficking are, are, are very often uh, extremely wealthy, very powerful, very influential people worldwide, not just in one country, but all over the world. And, and that is why uh, the federal government, the U.S. government, the FBI in this case, much like the RCMP does when they investigate, they're very meticulous, rest assured that before they arrested Maxwell, they had a rock-solid case on her. And as they move forward, what will be interesting is whether this even goes to trial. And the reason I say that is because clearly she is a very cunning, very manipulative human being, and it is highly likely that she will come to the table with a significant amount of leverage. Mm -hmm. So if she can produce names, Simi, if she can produce names, that would open the eyes of the federal government in the United States to say, uh, wow, then she may never make it to trial. What took so long to arrest her? You know what? It's, it's funny you ask that question. It's a great question. You know, there's an old saying, don't make a federal case out of it. And that's because the federal government in the United States in, in law enforcement are enormously meticulous when they build a case. And again, much like the RCMP, very, very professional, very organized and methodical in how they build a case. So, they took their time to make sure that they had rock-solid evidence against her. And number two, in the FBI's case, they have to sell this to the assistant U.S. attorney. They have to sell it to them to say, look, this is our case, and, and we certainly have a good case. The U.S. attorney has to give them a the thumbs up before they move forward. So that's why it takes a lot longer, but it's also why well, more than 90% of cases are convicted on the federal level. You talked about naming names there, which is what I think a lot of people are waiting for. And given the whole situation of what happened with Jeffrey Epstein when he was in jail, how closely do you think she's being monitored right now? There is no place that she will go where she will not be monitored on camera and not be monitored, closely monitored by correctional officers in that facility. Uh, and I'm very familiar with that facility. I started my career next door to it. In Manhattan Criminal Court, so I'm very familiar with where she's going to be uh, housed. And there is absolutely no question in my mind that they will have eyes on her 24 hours a day. And you think, like, as a heightened sense of awareness, given the lapses that we saw with Jeffrey Epstein? Oh, there's no question about that, Simi. There's absolutely no question about that. See, the big thing here is, um, as soon as the whole Epstein thing happened... People were casting aspersions towards correctional officers, which was really the most inaccurate part of that. But do I believe that he committed suicide? No, I do not. Um, you have to remember, 
this man was attached, and, and I, I'm using that word very calculately, he, he was attached to extremely powerful people in the world. And that information were to get out, that's devastating. It's beyond devastating. And don't think for a second, as you and I are sitting here right now, that there aren't people right now really sweating over the fact yeah. that Maxwell is in custody. I think that's the other reason why average Joes like us are just so fascinated by this story is that will she name names? And there's so many famous oh. people that are attached to this, right? We see the pictures of her with <laughs> Prince Andrew, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump. I mean, they're all there. Simi, it's not what she can name. It's what she can prove. And you can't be a person like this. And after 40 years in law enforcement, I can tell you this unequivocally. You can't be a person like this and not collect your own evidence so that you protect yourself in the event you go down. So don't think she doesn't have that black book or maybe recordings or videotapes or a variety of things. Don't think she hasn't kept her own little treasure trove of information to protect herself, which is why, you know, prosecutors are salivating over the fact of seeing of what she actually has. So you said that you don't think this will actually go to trial then? I do not. I do not think it's going to go to trial. If she has a fraction of what they believe she has, and she will be able to, to come to the table with a significant amount of leverage. And depending on how large those names are, Simi, she can buy herself a get-out-of-jail-free card and possibly end up in WITSEC, which is you know, witness security program. Well, given that it was about a year, right? People were waiting about where is she? What has she been arrested? What's going on here? Right. I, I, I keep reading stories about her being surprised that she was even arrested at this point. I don't think she was surprised at all. I think she knew it, it was coming again. You know, we're, we're, we're talking about, you know, an extremely narcissistic, sociopathic, manipulative mind. You know, this isn't the victim that went to hide in the corner because she got pushed around by somebody. That's not the case. This is an evil person. I mean, there are good people that do bad things. There are bad people, and there are evil people. This woman's evil. There's no question about that. You don't take 12, 13, 14-year-old girls and mastermind a human trafficking plan around them and and think that you're the victim. Okay, so so how how challenging is that then for prosecutors as well, Paulo? Because you're right. There there are all of these women who say they were victims. How do you allow somebody to, the one person who's left— off the hook, so to speak, just because they name names? Well, because it depends on how big the names are, Simi, and I hate to say that. God forgive me for saying that, but it depends how big those names are. That's the leverage. Because if she's like, look, I'll give you, a, give you a taste as to what I have. I'll give you a piece of what I have. And bearing in mind that evidence could very well be sitting in a vault in her attorney's office somewhere. You know, it depends on how much they have and, and what they have and how concrete it is and who the names are. But it would not surprise me. It would not surprise me if she never makes the trial. Hmm. Interesting. All right, Paul, thank you very much. Always a pleasure to join you, Simi. Have a great day. You too. That's Paul Violas, who's a law enforcement and security analyst with CBS. He also hosts a podcast called Mending America, if you'd like to check that out. But again, this is a story, this Ghislaine Maxwell story, that I think a lot of people are watching very, very carefully. Well, it's not your imagination if you think the mosquitoes are really bad this year. We're hearing that apparently the mosquito problem in Metro Vancouver is the worst it's been in almost a decade. So what can you actually do about that? Well, joining us now is Sean Calver, mosquito controller at Moral Bioscience. Sean, good morning. Thank you for being here. 
No problem. How are you doing? Good, thank you. How does one become a mosquito controller? <laughs> uh, that's um, it was actually a university job. So every summer, I'd come back from university, and um, that would be my job is to come and control mosquitoes, and it sort of morphed into a more of a full time occupation. I guess. I guess, given that how busy it is with mosquitoes this year, you're probably pretty busy. This is a very busy year for us. Yeah. And why is that? It's all related to the Fraser River. Um, when the Fraser River comes up, it floods in areas that are typically dry, and that kind of started happening early May. So our crews got out in early May and started treating for mosquitoes, and the program is, is strictly larval control. So what that means is we target mosquitoes when they're in the floodwaters of the Fraser River. So we apply a granule directly to the water, and it kills these guys off before they come out into the biting adults that we're obviously noticing now. Right. So you're saying that, like we just have to get past these biting adults? Yeah, and it's been very problematic this year because the Fraser, like I said, dictates what happens. And every single time we see a higher peak than the previous higher peak in the Fraser, that translates to more mosquitoes hatching. So we've really been treating since early May until still today we're treating and we'll continue to treat uh, next week as well. So it's been um, a sustained issue with this Fraser River. Okay, yeah. Because, so you're getting kind of swampy areas, is that it? That's right, yeah. So is it just the Fraser River area, Sean, or should people be looking at any kind of standing water that they may have on their property? Yeah, we recommend that anyone who has any standing water in their property try to eliminate those sources, whether it's for bass, wheelbarrows, you're making sure your gutters are unclogged. That can cause a, a localized uh, issue for mosquitoes, um, but not in the same numbers. So everyone that is living close to the Fraser is experiencing higher than normal numbers of mosquitoes. So it's not their imagination. It's not their imagination. <laughs> uh, so have you been getting a lot of calls of complaints about this? Yeah, we've had quite a few calls. And a lot of it's kind of just asking kind of what's going on this year type of thing and um, once you explain that Mother Nature has thrown a curveball, yeah. um, they're very understanding. Is it too late to do something now then? As you were saying, you've been kind of doing this since beginning of May. Is it too late to get in on this to control the population for this year? Well, we're continuing to control the population. So like I said, we, we put these granules into the water and we'll be doing that again this week as well. Um, we do get about 80 to 90% of them, but in a, such a high water year like this, that remainder is still quite significant, which is why it's causing all sorts of issues. Okay, so normally you would do it right at the beginning of May, and then that's it? You wouldn't have to do it again for the summer? Uh, depends what the river does, but this is, for, for us to see a light, sorry, such a high peak in the Fraser River in July, is that hasn't happened in a long time. A long time. Okay, so how many more weeks do you foresee doing this? Yeah, it's going to be, for us, hopefully the last of our mosquito treatments should be occurring the next week or so. Um, these guys will, the biting adult mosquitoes, will be around for at least seven more weeks. Oof. Okay, so Sean, you mentioned what you're doing then, but what can homeowners do to kind of mitigate this problem? Yeah, we recommend the repellent with DEET. That can certainly help. Light-colored clothing is better than dark. And obviously, dawn and dusk are kind of the worst times to be outside. All right. So it's going to be this way for the next little while. Yeah, a couple weeks at least, yeah. Oh, sounds like it. All right, Sean, thank you. 
No problem. Take care. That is Sean Calvary. He's a mosquito controller, works at Moral Bioscience, not your imagination. It is a terrible mosquito year. As you heard him say, they've been working pretty much every week since the beginning of May to try to control the mosquito population off the Fraser River. But with those high levels of water on the Fraser and some other rivers, there are going to continue to be problems. Now, we had just been talking to Mark Madriga about this. Now, it looks like the water levels are going to stay pretty steady for the next week or so. So you can bet that that's going to continue to cause a problem. Uh, Hopefully not much higher. But yeah, that is a pain in the butt, that mosquito problem this year. So uh, if you're having a problem, you are not alone on that. It astounds me almost every day the stupid things people will say or post on social media. And then when it blows up, they profess to be shocked and surprised. Want another example? Well, here's one for you, unfortunately. In this current climate with everything that is going on, why would any law enforcement officer think that it's a good idea to make racially insensitive jokes on social media? Alas, that is what happened. An RCMP officer in Kamloops posted pictures of himself wearing a charcoal skincare face mask and then captioned the photos with things like blackface session. It's supposed to help my looks. I don't think it's working. And then another photo shows him with the entire face mask on his whole face. And his caption reads, is my skincare racist? Microaggressions matter. Well, the constable in question is now under review, but not without this hitting a lot of controversy. And if you're another law enforcement officer, you would think, man, what are you doing? Are you just trying to make everybody look bad? Well, our next guest, Chad Haggerty, is Métis and a former RCMP officer, and he has been very outspoken about the issue of racism within the RCMP. And this social media post was brought to his attention. Chad, thank you very much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. What did you think when you first saw this? Uh, the language that came out probably isn't appropriate for your probably. audience. But, um, that kind of frustration, especially with, uh, you know, Commissioner Lucky in, in Ottawa, uh, the Deputy Commissioner, guy in charge of Alberta, uh, Zablocki, um, and uh, Superintendent Lecky in Kamloops, all saying recently that um, the RCMP isn't experiencing systemic racism and, or racism doesn't exist. Um, both Commissioner Lucky and Deputy, uh, Deputy Commissioner Zablocki walk back their statements. Hopefully Superintendent Lecky in Kamloops takes a look at this and revisits his, his statement from middle of June saying that racism or systemic racism isn't an issue in Kamloops because obviously there are some problems. Is it just, there's a lot of stupidity involved here too, right? Like why would you do this? Uh, Yeah, stupidity actually, that's probably the best word for it. Uh, The demonstrated lack of sensitivity, uh, you know, to the issues that all of North America and, you know, probably even wider than that is experiencing. at any time, it's a bad joke, especially now when police are under intense scrutiny because mm-hmm. of racial interactions. Um, it's it just boggles my mind that that uh, any officer would post this on a public, easily accessible platform. Now, Chad, what was your time in the RCMP like? What were these issues like for you? So I'm a white passing Métis man. I look. I'm in my late 40s now, so now I look like an old white guy. Um, 
when I always work in uh, in Indigenous postings, or almost always work in Indigenous postings uh, near First Nations reserves or communities, um, comments were made <clears throat> that were that were very blunt. Uh, I was told actually still have a letter from uh, a senior member telling me that I was hired because I was an Indian and I should go back to the reserve. Apologize for the language, but it's what was used and um, sometimes. Uh, it needs to be used. How long was that? How long ago was that? Uh, so that was, I left the RCMP in 2011. And, so not that uh, long ago. Before that. No, not terribly long ago. I mean, a decade sounds like a long time. But the reality is in an organization like the RCMP, a decade uh, is nowhere near enough time for cultural change to begin or, or to happen. Right. And nothing has prompted uh, the change from, from those uh, you know, the racist comments that, that I would hear. Now, Chad, um, is that the problem? Do you think that when you have an organization as large as this with a culture that is entrenched as it is, is it possible to say to them, listen, we've got to start thinking about this kind of stuff? And does that trickle down? I suppose theoretically it can, but realistically, um, there's such an entrenched mindset amongst police officers that in order to examine the job, you have to be a police officer. But you've been enculturated um, by the organization that you work for. The RCMP needs to go outside of its uh, its ranks and recruit individuals that are have specific training um, in dealing with uh, racial issues, racial education, and they need to incorporate that into uh, their training of members, their um, internal uh, mechanisms that right. that control behavior and as long as they keep trying to fix things from within the problem will persist so what happens then when you bring these these things up because i know you've done this in the past right you see something on social media you bring it up to the rcmp or police what happens then so when i was when i received a letter for example telling me to go back to the reserve essentially i brought that up with my supervisor and with uh with his supervisor and in both cases i was told basically to stay quiet, uh, keep within the ranks. If I made a complaint about another police officer, I wouldn't be trusted. Uh, so I've been contacted because I've been vocal. I've been co- contacted a few times mm-hmm. uh, by members of the public, and I've given them the, you know, the procedures by which you can make a complaint about a police officer. Um, one of the individuals in a different incident uh, contacted, left a message, and was not was not called back. I called in and was able to speak to a supervisor um, in a similar, I would say, worse situation. To the supervisor's credit, um, he was immediately um, disgusted by those postings, which were very clearly racist and misogynist and uh, very troubling. Um, And the RCMP, in my view, responded appropriately in that situation, and that member was suspended almost immediately. And that was recently, right? Yeah, that was a couple of weeks ago. Okay, so is that possible then that they are hearing that message? I, I think it is possible, and I think that that incident um, was, you know, it's encouraging. What what's concerning though is that <clears throat> um, it's taking it's taken this much effort, this much uh, attention mm-hmm. for those changes to happen. As long as things keep progressing forward, that that is good. 
but addressing situations after they happen um, does nothing to protect civilians on the street who are being preferentially targeted by police because of their status as a black indigenous or person of color. Um, so it, the, the, the training needs to come in beforehand because after action review um, still leaves individuals unfairly charged, disproportionately targeted and feeling like their, their police aren't keeping them safe. And that's, mm-hmm. that's primary. Chad, thank you very much for talking to us about this today. My pleasure. Thanks for promoting the conversation. That is Chad Haggerty. He's a former RCMP officer. He's a current student at law with a criminal defense firm. Uh, And essentially, he's talking about these cases of stupid things, sometimes racist things that get said on social media by law enforcement officers. His latest case in Kamloops of an officer who kind of made fun of blackface because he was wearing a charcoal face mask and said, is my skincare racist? Microaggressions matter in kind of a sarcastic way. Uh, That officer, the constable, is now under review once those posts were kind of brought to the attention of his superiors. And And again, it always astounds me that people who post stuff like that then are surprised when there is fallout and consequences as a result of it. So we'll let you know if there's any update to that story.